0: I just want to jump on that thought for a minute because it has been a theme for me this week. the uh, The idea of here's my heart, take and seal it for thy courts above. You know that our hearts are prone prone to wonder. I had this. This thought earlier in the week and I was sharing with a group this morning how the Lord keeps speaking to it, the same idea. So I want to share it because I think maybe it's something we all need to hear. So I'll wait till everybody's ready to go. Y'all ready? All right. Got your mind settled and ready to kick in? Because it's a little early for me to start kicking this in. Y'all ready? Do I need to fluff around a little bit? Okay. All right, here we go. So this is the thought I had in the middle of the week. I literally wrote this in my journal. I just had this thought, and here's the thought. Every time I read a story about somebody who is in some great service for God, or someone whose heart, who describes their love for God in a very passionate, emotional way, you know, that I just love God, I just, you know, and or, you know, and I, I found myself in tears on the floor, you know, just that kind of emotion and all of that I feel guilty does anybody else feel that at times probably not because y'all are probably feel with love for God and passion for his service and you have emotions which I don't have I mean I just feel I feel guilty when I read that if I don't possess the level of passion for God or heartfelt whatever emotion for God or if I don't possess the, if I if I don't possess the the desire to do the work that this person is doing, like today, Ashley brought up the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was also just a continuation of the same thought. Uh, she was hearing uh, she heard someone preaching yesterday on in a podcast about the martyrs that died for Christ. You know, and the and the death and it the, gave descriptions of the horrifying deaths that they. That they died, and in the in the process of their death, they blessed God. You know, when I read that kind of stuff, I realized this week that I feel guilty. And then the, the, I believe the Spirit spoke to me in that. Why do you feel guilty? And so I answered the question. <laughs> I, I think I feel guilty because I expect that I'm supposed to act like that, even if I don't feel those things. Now that's a pretty big revelation for me at this point in. in my abiding in Christ. That God doesn't want me to feel something, doesn't want me to act in a way that I don't feel, right? Not, not, not necessarily, like, I may, like I've decided to follow Christ, and certainly if God tells me to do something I don't feel like doing, but I know He's told me to do it, I do feel like doing it, because I've already decided in my heart, and I know in my heart, I really do want to serve God any way that He leads me, but I don't need to feel guilty about something that God has not possessed my heart to do, right? I mean, that's God's job, to, to grab my heart. And so I love what we're singing this morning, just that, just that phrase of, I'm prone to wander. Man, my heart is prone to go a hundred different directions. I'm prone to live my life and spend my time and my energies and my money on myself, not on God, right? And so God has to win my heart to that. Now, you know, we are, we are being won over. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He's sanctifying our hearts, not just our ways. And most of us may not have made that transition in our thinking that, oh yeah, God's sanctifying our ways. He's trying to change the way we act. He's not. I mean, He, he, he will, but it's the fruit of Him changing our heart. God is sanctifying our hearts, just like I do things now for Telitha that I didn't do for her when I was dating her, because I love her more now, and I, I, I've done a life with her, and there's you know, our relationship has grown into tremendously, so there, I would do anything for her now, where when we got married, I probably wouldn't have done anything for her. It was all about me. You do, you know, I'll do a few things probably, but not much, right? That's what happens in relationship, and God's called us to a relationship with Him. So I want to throw that out, even though it's not in the sermon today, I want to throw that out, because you may be feeling the same thing, and God keeps repeating this message over and over again, or right, it might just be for me. But I, I have asked the Lord to, to take my heart and seal it for his courts. Seal my heart for your desires. Seal my heart for who you are. You know, I love that, that we were singing about the person of God today and being, being overwhelmed by who we discover him to be. Uh, that, that's it, God. Show us your goodness. Let your goodness, like a fetter, draw my wandering heart to thee. Not like a dug fetter, but like a fetter, right? Let your goodness draw my heart to thee. All right, it's good lyrics and definitely what I'm feeling this week. All right, instead I I do want to uh, get back into our text. So today we're going to get into Paul. Let me read the text and we'll get started. We've got a pretty good good, uh, number of verses today. So if you will commit to the next two minutes of this text being read and really trying to plug your heart into that, say, oh, yeah. All right, so you commit it. So here we go. Plug into the text, it's on the board if you need to read it, if you can certainly look it up in your Bible or your electronic device of choice, uh, but we're going to read this and, and we're going to look at it from a whole different perspective today, a totally biblical perspective but a different perspective than I've ever looked at this text before and I'm excited about sharing this with you today. Here we go, Acts chapter 9, Saul's beginning, okay, in verses 1 through 22. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight into the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come, uh, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints of jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name but the lord said to him go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the gentiles and kings and children of israel for i will show him how much he must suffer for my for my for the sake of my name so ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him he said brother saul And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc at Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose, that purpose, to bring, us bound, bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by providing, uh, or proving rather, that Jesus was the Christ. All right, here we go. It's going to be a different verse, uh, version today, a different message today. Because we're looking at the book of Acts as an example to us of what it means to be a community that blesses. What does a biblical community look like? And so we have the community of Christ in its infancy, figuring out the Holy Spirit, submitting themselves to the Holy Spirit, and everything is changing. And so the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about evangelism from the perspective of a Spirit-filled community who is dedicated to follow the, the Holy Spirit's leadership in all their life and do what the Holy Spirit leads them to do. And so we come to Philip, who is different than the rest in the sense that Philip is told by God, the Holy Spirit, he's led by the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans, right? And so he goes to the Samaritans, and a great number of those Samaritans believed on, on Christ. These were Gentiles, and Gentiles that, uh, that Jews had nothing to do with, uh, they, they were cast out, man. They had nothing to do with these guys. They were rejected by the Jews, and so these Samaritans come to believe in Christ. And then Philip goes to an Ethiopian eunuch who's a wealthy, busy man of status, who's serving the queen of Ethiopia, a, a person of power, but a Gentile, an Ethiopian, a, somebody that, a person that would not be included in those that would belong to God until this moment when Philip is led by God into the desert place, waiting on God and not knowing what God's doing, just being obedient to what the Holy Spirit's leading him to do. He goes to the desert place, and the Holy Spirit leads this interaction. We saw all the ways that the Holy Spirit did it all. And so the Holy Spirit's trying to teach them something. He's trying to teach them and us something, that it's not about us, it's about them. Or it's about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has access to us. Then He can do what He desires to show who He is to the people that we're trying, that He's called us to speak to. He's beginning to show that. So it's a difference because Jews would not go. The apostles would not go to the Gentiles. Even the apostles. As a matter of fact, Philip went. He was not an apostle, and they had to call the apostles in so that they so the apostles could lay hands on him to see that the Holy Spirit could actually go into a Gentile. God, Remember, God delayed their receiving of the Holy Spirit so the apostles could see it. The apostles didn't believe that Gentiles could be saved. And so God's moving us to understand and moving the church in that day to understand that anybody, even the most difficult to reach, even those that we would think are wanderers out there, that, that they need to be blessed. And that is, we follow the Holy Spirit in our relationship with them and so Philip gave us a beautiful example of that last week. If you weren't here to get to hear that message, go back and listen to it. It is our blessed acrostic. Philip was in prayer and constant communion with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit led him to a place where he would listen to an Ethiopian eunuch. And he didn't eat with him, as far as we know, but he served him by answering his questions about the Scripture. And then he shared the truth of the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch, and he believed and was saved and baptized. And then God does this, this new meaning today, okay, with today's message. Y'all still with me? So, so God plucks Philip out. I mean, literally removes him so that he was seen no more. There is no other way to interpret that passage other than he disappeared. God took Philip away. Now, he didn't take him to heaven, but he takes Philip away, and Philip found himself, <laughs> which is a pretty interesting word. Philip found himself in Azotus, which is Ashdod, which is the Gentile center of worship. It was the only piece of, of uh, the promised land that had not yet been captured com- successfully by the Jewish people. Multiple attempts in history, not in the Scripture, but there are multiple attempts that are talked about in uh, Maccabees and in uh, Josephus's historical uh, writings we find a lot of stories about how different ones went to try to take this city and and it stayed still uh, it, it remained a gentile stronghold of worship so god plucks him out and puts him there now here's what i think god again is beginning to say i don't need you i will use you but i don't need you it's not philip's idea to show up at azotus it wasn't Philip that said, hey, I think I'll go to another place. I'm gonna, you know, this was, pretty, this was pretty good with the Samaritans. I have the gift of reaching people outside of the Jewish faith. So I'm going to go to the Gentile stronghold. God didn't want that to be any of Philip. He wanted it to be him. God, wants, God is trying to show us something in this part of the story, right? He's taking Philip out and he puts him there. So Philip doesn't have a choice. Now Philip has a choice whether to share or not, and Philip's going to do that because he's passionate about his relationship with Christ. He's passionate about the story he has to tell. He can't help but speak what he's learned and what he's heard. So wherever, wherever God puts him, he's going to speak. But he doesn't want Philip. He don't want anybody to think this was Philip's idea. That's so significant because today we come on on the we come to Saul. And God does something even more phenomenal and more. Uh, to, to reveal that he doesn't need us. Matter of fact, I didn't title the message just today, but the title of the message is God Doesn't Need Us. <laughs> I'm so convinced that God is trying to show us this in this progression of what happens with Philip. Philip's a nobody, first of all, okay? So when Philip goes in the, and the apostles don't go to the Samaritans, that's significant. That's God saying, I don't need you to be trained and I don't need you to be an apostle in order to win somebody to Christ. Then he then he goes to, to the Ethiopian eunuch to a place where there's nobody out in the middle of the desert. Because I want you to know that if you'll go where I go, this is me. I'm doing it all. And then he goes to Azotus. So as I said, he plucks him out, puts him there. And now God does it all himself. The Holy Spirit comes to Saul on the road to Damascus. And he wants to show us something in this process. He wants to, wants to show us that he doesn't need us. The Holy Spirit of God, Jesus himself, in spirit form, won Saul to himself without the help of any man. Now, why is that significant? I'm going to show you some of the things that he did. But listen, I want to show you why it's significant in the whole of what God is trying to communicate to us and show us about himself. Why did God do what he did in the Old Testament? Why is it that that God uh, destroys... The, the people in, in Genesis prior to Noah and saves Noah and his family is because everybody was about themselves. They were all about making, them, making a name for themselves, building something for themselves, and they all forgot about God. He created us to have a relationship with him, and yet all of creation except for one family is turned away from him, and the only thoughts in their in their hearts were to do evil. So he destroys them, and he starts over with Noah and his family, a godly man who's pursuing him. That's the purpose. He wants men to come to him. And then all the way through the Old Testament, after that, even, they go to Babel. And in Babel, they start building this tower, and they can all speak the same language. And they think, we're going we're gonna to reach God by ourselves by building this tower to get to God. And God has to destroy it. No, it's not about you. I don't need you. I'm giving myself to you. I'm going to do everything necessary for you. Quit trying to earn your way. And, and so he, he confuses their language, and they can't even communicate anymore in order to stop them from trying to do it themselves build your relationship with God, know me, learn learn from me, get to know me. It's all about I built you to have a relationship with me. But we are so prone to want to do everything for ourselves. So even after that, Israel still keeps striving to be something, do something. We can do it ourselves. We can do it ourselves. We want to have control. Uh, And so they, they do that all the way through the Old Testament. They want to choose Saul to be their king instead of Instead of a David, a man after God's heart, they want to choose a Saul who looks like every other king who's powerful and knows how to fight in battle, can lead us out into battle and we can win. We want to do it ourselves, do it ourselves. And Saul falls and David comes and he's chosen by God because he has a, a, a Samuel who's willing to be obedient and go to Jesse's sons and pull, pull David out. Over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament, the whole reason why God gave us the law, gave Israel the law, not us. The reason why God gave the Jews the law to follow is because he wanted them to realize they couldn't do it. That was the whole purpose of it. It was to get them to the end of themselves. Go read the book of Hebrews and Romans. It talks about what the law was for. It's to bring death, death to our striving, death to our trying, death to our trying to be somebody and earn our own way. All of that was the purpose of the whole Old Testament. And yet, still today, man, when it comes to evangelism, who's responsible? Who's responsible? We think it's us. We think if I don't share, if I don't work, if I don't do, then God, these people are not going to be saved. We want to earn our way, earn something. We want to be able to say we won this many. We baptized this many. We're we're a significant church because of all the things we've done. Look at what we do. Look at what we've done. Look at how many people I've won. Look at how many people I've witnessed to. Look at how many people I've done all these things for. And I believe as long as it's about us, God is not going to bless it. I think God is trying to find somebody, some, some church, some few people that would just be willing to walk with the Holy Spirit in relationships with people in this community so that he can win people and we can be blown away. I, I've had many experiences, not nearly as many experiences as I'd like, but I've had many experiences of seeing someone come to Christ when I just followed the Holy Spirit like Philip did last week. Just feel like I got put in a place I didn't belong or the person I didn't, didn't, didn't know, and then God opened the door, and then they, they, they became a believer. More times than not, God gives us long-term relationships, some of which I've been in for more than 10 years, who are still not even close to becoming believers. And I'm just just being in the relationship and waiting on the Holy Spirit to open the right door at the right time. And so I think it's significant what happens in this story. Not because Paul becomes his great evangelist, although he does, right? Paul is the greatest missionary that ever lived, wrote over half the New Testament. But he's the one that Jesus led to believe. He's the one that brought him to a point of belief. Jesus did it himself. He doesn't need us. And if we can just get out of the way, we're doing the best thing we can do. By not trying to be important, to be an apostle who knows everything. Well, I've walked with Jesus for years. I'm ready. I know how to win people. Man, we just need to get out of the way and say, I don't know anything. And I'm just going to follow your lead, Holy Spirit. You lead. And Paul's a great example of that. Let's look at it. First of all, the church was not going to lead Saul to the Lord. I got to thinking about this. Why, why would Jesus do it himself? One of the reasons was the church needed to see that somebody that they would not ever even consider would ever become a believer, God could touch them. I mean, think about it. The church is scattered. Remember, after, after uh, Stephen's stoning to death for professing his faith, the church scatters and goes back uh, to their homelands. It gets out of Jerusalem, gets as far away from there as they can. And who's, who is who is approving of Stephen's stoning while all the cloaks of those who were doing the stoning were laying at his feet? Who was it? Saul. He's laying there. He is the man, right? He's the one that's approving of all this. He's the, the Pharisee that's standing up and saying, yes, this is right. So, they're, man, they are running away from Saul. Nobody's interested. Nobody would even imagine. Can you imagine your worst enemy, the guy that hates you the most? Could you ever, ever imagine him or her, I mean the person that hate you, they would kill you if they could, and get away with it. That they would actually become your best friend, and join the cause that you're about. That's who Saul was. There wasn't going to be any believer that was going to win him. People were doing what they do in the flesh. They were running away. And so Saul needed a touch from Christ, and, and it was, he wasn't even on the radar of the believers of that, of that day. This guy was a persecutor of the church, so it had to be Jesus. Let me just make a point here. Because I think we have a tendency to judge other people rather than ourselves in regard to whether they can be saved or not, or whether they will ever come around to truth or not. And particularly in this church, I think we judge other believers, other church people, Christians in other churches. I think we tend to look at other churches and say, well, you know, man, those people are never going to come around. I mean, I've been been convicted by that. I mean, Bill McCullen, whose testimony you can hear next week, by the way, next Sunday, he's going to share his testimony of how he came from being a religious Pharisee like me to where he is now. Oh, man. They, they want Christ just as much as we do, and we just need to realize that there are people that are, seem like they have it all together. They might be even persecuting us for the way we believe and teach, but if they could have what we have in Christ, they would desire it, and so we need to recognize that, that there are some people that, that God wants to reach, some of our worst enemies, uh, and some of them are atheists and universalists also that are against us because we stand for Christ. I think about Lee Strobel. I thought about him this past week. I don't know if y'all got to see his movie or if you read his book, The Case for Christ. But a tremendous story about an atheist turned Christian when he was trying to prove that Jesus was not the Son of God. And in his investigation as an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, I mean, that's what he did for a living. He found that there was more evidence. It took more, less faith to believe in Jesus than it did to believe that he didn't, that he wasn't the Son of God. God can do that in anybody's life. Don't write anybody off. We need to believe that God is working and moving and and that he's going to win people to himself. And he wants us to be involved in that. So Jesus doesn't need our help. But also just realize that there are people all around us that God wants to win to himself. Another thing, Paul was touched by Jesus while he was breathing murderous threats against the Christians. Jesus didn't wait for Paul to get better, right? He touched him in the middle of his rebellion. I think that that's huge for us. We need to recognize that Jesus doesn't want there to be anything else in the mix. You know, I've struggled with this at different times, but Jesus didn't, didn't need any goodness from Paul to be in the mix. That would actually be counterproductive. Paul's core problem was not that he was persecuting the church. Paul's, poor, Paul's core problem was that he had the wrong religious worldview. And so Paul's religion didn't help him at all to come to Christ. Jesus grabbed him right in the middle of him persecuting the church. I can't tell you how many times people tried to tell me that they weren't good enough to come to Jesus. Happens all the time. You start sharing Christ with people or you start talking about God and what he has for their life. They'll tell you that they, they don't feel good enough. They're just not good enough to come to Christ. Look, here's Saul, persecutor of the church. Good news. It doesn't matter how bad you are. You can be the worst of the worst of the worst. And, and God will come to you. And He comes to Saul. Or I can't tell you how many times people have tried to be good Christians or to live a good Christian life. I think about Paul, our Paul, Ellington. <laughs> You know, when Paul and I were sitting outside the coffee shop talking about, uh, about just a, a person that he was trying to have a relationship with to try and talk to him about God. And Paul was always, every time he would talk to me, it would be about his goodness, you know. I mean, I, he knew he was bad, and I knew he was bad. And it wasn't that we didn't know, he was, the world didn't know he was bad. He was bad. But Paul was sharing all this stuff about, I said, Paul, let me ask you something, man. Do you think your goodness makes you better in God's eyes? time we finished this conversation, we talked about the grace of God and how he reaches down to us where we are. And he, he saves us out of our, our goodness is badness. Our Paul prayed to receive Christ that night. He, he was trying to be good enough to get ready to do whatever he was going to do with God. And that message is all throughout this community. There are people who think they have to be good in order to earn something for God. In order to work their way up to a place where maybe they can become a Christian. They have no idea about the truth of the gospel. And so Saul didn't have anything that he could add. And we have that same issue today. Romans 5, 10 to 11 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. These are Paul's words to the church at Rome. And he says, we were enemies. He didn't say I was an enemy. He says we were enemies. We're all enemies of Christ. And prior to this passage, right, the few verses above it, he says uh, that, that it's uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ, we need to realize that that's who we were. We were just like Saul. But God, that doesn't stop God from coming after us. Another thing in this passage that, that I think is significant. Jesus doesn't need more time to reach those that are hard to reach. He doesn't need more time. There was no slow, tender wooing of Saul from a life of Pharisaic, uh, a Pharisaic lifestyle to this, to become a believer. He didn't take his time and ease his way into it. It's not necessary. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't want us to build relationships with people. I'm just saying God wanted to show us that he could do it in a second with the hardest person ever. Saul's hard to reach, and it was an immediate experience that changed Saul's life. God can not only win those who are hard to reach, but he can move them from a place of persecution to a place of total belief and preaching in a matter of seconds. That's the power of God. When God grabs a hold of a life. So even though God uses us and certainly within the context of relationships, again, we have, we're blessing people. We are wooing people. We're not wooing them to try to win them. We're just wooing them because that's what love does. Because we've been blessed. Because we are children of Abraham by the blessing of salvation. And so he says that those nations will be blessed by us. So we're blessing people. Spending time with them praying for them, listening to them, eating with them, serving them. And then when the time is right, as God gives us an opportunity, we share the the gospel. Look, look at what Jesus can do in salvation. When he has absolute control, he can take someone who doesn't believe in a second to the point of believing. Also, in relation to to, uh, Saul, Jesus gives him a sign. But it's a different kind of sign. Remember in the Old Testament, God Filled the landscape of the, of the story of, of the exodus of Israel with miracle after miracle. So the ten plagues, the Red Sea, the water at Mara, uh, manna from heaven, doves, uh, uh, fire by the, uh, night and a cloud by day to guide them through. The, miracle after miracle. And as a result, the Jews were still looking for and demanding signs from whoever they would receive to be the Messiah. They needed a sign. Jesus not only, you know, he talks about, Paul, Paul talks about at one point how the Jews always look for signs. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 20 to 24. It says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's like God said, okay, here's your sign. Here's your sign, Paul. I love that. Y'all know the comedian. Here's your sign. Here's your sign, Paul. You want it? You're blind and you're laying in the dirt in the desert on the road to Damascus. There's your sign. But it wasn't a sign like the Israelites got in the wilderness. And we've talked about the necessity of this at the beginning of the study of the book of Acts. It wasn't, The signs of, for the Israel in the book of Exodus was to help the, you know, it was, for the, it was for Israel. It was for the whole nation. When God did a sign, he did it for the whole nation. And in their minds, the only people that could get their own signs from God, their own evidence from God that he was real was Moses, for instance. You know, Moses would go to God, but you come to us. We don't want to go to God. You go to God, and then you come to us and tell us what God says. There was no intimate, personal relationship with God, and we talked about this already, but at the beginning of the book of Acts, and now we're seeing for the first time everybody is having their own personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. So Saul gets his. Saul gets his sign from God that any good Pharisaical Jew needed. He needed to see and know that Jesus was real. And so he has this blinding light and this voice from heaven. He's knocked to the ground and he's, and he's blinded. And he hears a voice literally, physical, I mean audibly hears a voice saying, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. So he got what he needed. And I just want to encourage you also. We, you know, we get a little nervous when it comes to religious people who know a lot about their religion particularly people that are involved in cults or whatever else, and we think, oh, man, I've got to know everything about their religion in order to bring them to the knowledge of Christ. No, just know this. God will put in your mouth what they need to hear. God will put in your life what they need to see. God is the one that does that. It's not your responsibility to, to have gone to conferences on uh, uh, to be able to argue your faith, the different types of faith, it's okay to do that. But I'm just saying, that God will do it. God will use that. God will speak in the moment. God will give evidence that what you're saying is true. Apologetics is not your responsibility. It's God's. So trust in him for that. I think there's some people that think, if I go to enough conferences, learn enough, get enough knowledge about ways to win different kinds of people that I'm going to be more successful. Well, if God leads you to go, then you can go. And that's, then you can say it's the Holy Spirit. It's not you. It's him. Alright, then Paul's also taught to abide right at the beginning. Taught to abide in the commands of Christ. Look at the first thing that God, Jesus says to him. He says, but rise, verse 6 of chapter 9. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Rise and enter the city. On day one. Right after his conversion. What's Jesus' way of discipling Saul, he gives him a command to follow. Abiding in Christ, doing what Jesus tells us to do, helps us to come to know him by experience. When we know him by experience, then we really know who he is. We see his activity in our lives. We know him by experience. The beginning of the abiding cycle is obeying, is having a command from Christ and then obeying what he says. That's what abiding is. And so immediately Jesus gives Saul a command to follow that challenges his faith. He has to wait three days before he's healed. But he does what Jesus tells him to do. I mean, I shouldn't have to say anything else about that. Abiding in Christ, church, is what we do. We need to start abiding in Christ. It's the first thing that Jesus tells his convert to do. When Jesus wins somebody to to believe in him and he redeems a soul, this is what he does. Number one thing he does, he gives a command to follow. And and we're gonna see later that he makes a point. He doesn't go to the apostles to find out what to do. He goes, Jesus gives him a command to follow. That's huge. Because now he's gonna start to learn to build his relationship with Christ. I'm I'm so regretful about all the years that I spent in ministry where I, you know, the Lord would give me an opportunity to win someone in an in experience of salvation and they, they get saved and immediately I'm plugging them in here's all the things you need to do let me just give you a list follow the list, do it all get this stuff going rather than leaving people to Jesus to let him tell them what to do so Jesus does the right thing <laughs> he's the best disciple that there is and he gives them something to do Jesus does We don't need to give them something to do. Jesus is not our example in that. We need to let Jesus give them something to do. Immediately plug them in. Ask them to ask the Holy Spirit. Teach them to connect with Him. Teach them to hear His voice. Teach them to abide in Him. That's our goal. It's not to to give them a list of things to do. It's to teach them to let Him, to to connect with Him in a way that He can give them what they need to do. Then Then the work of the Holy Spirit in the church comes back into play. Now, we, we just talked about this was nothing to do with the church. This had everything to do with Saul. It was all Jesus and Saul. No church there with him, just Jesus and Saul, other than Ananias has this encounter with Jesus, which we're going to talk about that. But look at what happens. Then the work of the Holy Spirit comes into play. Now, church is going to make some new discoveries about the power and love of Jesus and what he meant, for instance, when you, in Luke chapter 6, uh, this passage here, in verses 27 28, Jesus said, I say to you uh, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Here's the lesson for the church out of of Saul's story. Here's the lesson for the church of that day, the book of Acts, these these believers who are trying to live by the Holy Spirit, now they're fixing to get their lesson. Jesus says, love your enemies. That That was his lesson. He also said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 46, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's Saul, the persecutor. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So what's the church learning through this story? You know, the church is is represented here by Ananias who's scared to death, doubtful at best, arguing a little bit with the the Holy Spirit who's telling him he's going to receive Saul into his house. And the people also as a result of his salvation are still doubtful about Saul. Jesus is trying to drive home. The message by the Holy Spirit, he's trying to drive home a message that he preached to his disciples and he preached on the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, bless those who persecute you. So what can we learn about blessing the lost and wandering from the work of the Holy Spirit in this story? I think, number one, God can save anyone without our help. Number two, we need to allow the love of God to fill us for those who persecute us. It's not going to be our love. It's not going to be something we can contrive or or draw out of something within ourselves. It's going to be the love of God. We need to let the love of God fill us for those who persecute us. And there's nothing harder than that. But as a church that's going to walk in the Holy Spirit, you know what's going to separate us from from other Christians, from the Christians that we used to be, and and other Christians that, that, that represent God poorly in the world? is that if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to be able to easily love those who persecute us. Now, if you're not there right now, if you get persecution from someone, you immediately turn on them. I just want to say, that I know it's okay. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, but it's something He wants to do in this body. That is our lesson from this story, is that God not only saves, but God wants us to allow the, His love to fill us for those who persecute us. What a great testimony that Jesus is in us is when someone persecutes you and you love them anyway not because you have to not the heap coals of fire on their head right but because there's a love in your heart for them and you feel bad for them you feel sorry for them and you want them to come to know the know Christ the way that you do and then the other thing is that God wants to replace our fear with love he wants to replace our fear with love and he does that in this story the effectiveness of Jesus' touch on the life of Paul. I'll close with this thought, but it's huge for us. Y'all with me still? Your okay, last thought, but here's a huge thought for us as a church. The effectiveness of Jesus' touch on the life of Paul was immediate discipleship without mentorship. There was immediate discipleship without any mentor in, the, in his life. The Scripture says that he spent some time with the disciples in Damascus. We're not talking about the 12 disciples. We're not talking about the apostles there in Jerusalem. We're talking about the disciples, the, the followers of Christ that lived in Damascus, who were scared to death of, of Saul. He spent some time with them. Probably in the background, they're all murmuring and saying, what in the world are we doing? This can't be real. They're not giving him any help. And if they are, maybe they're just kind of sharing their own testimonies or whatever. Maybe they got to that point. But this is not discipleship going on. He remained with them for a, short, a few days, the Bible said. And Here's what we do when people believe. We think we need to develop these elaborate systems of discipleship. That we have to build buildings that can house a small group of four people in a separate room for an hour a week in order to get them effectively discipled. And we spend millions, billions of dollars have been spent. I've spent it myself. Billions of dollars on buildings to be able to house groups that can meet for an hour a week you don't really want to be there, don't have enough time to do anything anyway. Meet in those small groups because we have to disciple them. We talk about people that go out of here uh, you know, go out of churches and they, they accepted Christ and they're not living for Christ, and it's because we didn't disciple them. Nobody discipled Paul. Greatest missionary that ever lived, wrote over half the New Testament. You know who discipled Paul? Jesus. Day in and day out, giving him command after command to follow. He was abiding in Christ, abiding in Christ, and coming to know him by experience, and writing and encouraging churches all through the, the New Testament. Man, that's, a, that's powerful to me. He he just spent a few days with the apostles. Saul didn't need man's discipling. He makes it clear in Galatians chapter 1. Look at it. Verses 11 and 17 through 17. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's powerful right there Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. <laughs> and God does not need us to win the loss for him. God does not need us to disciple the ones that come to Christ that we're connected with. He doesn't need us to do the discipling or the winning. Let that sink in for a second. I don't want to say but. I'm not going to say but. I am going to say and. He gives us opportunity to be involved in both. If we're we're involved in winning the loss and if we're going to be involved in discipling or in any way those who have come to Christ, then it's going to be Holy Spirit... What do you want me to say, Holy Spirit? What do you want me to do, Holy Spirit? Where are you leading me to go, Holy Spirit? It's all about you. He does it all by Himself. He doesn't need us, but He chooses to involve us. If you want to be involved, and it's such a huge blessing. You get to know. It's another way you get to know God when you see His power moving through you, around you, in you, putting you in the right places, bringing the right people softening their hearts so they're asking the right questions, putting the right words in your mouth. And when it's all said and done, you're going, I don't know what just happened. But that person wants to be baptized. You know, they just prayed to receive Christ. I don't know what just happened. And we spent hours and hours, again, money, after, you know, dollars on books after book. I had three different ways that I had to learn to, three different books of things to learn to be able to win someone to Christ when I was in seminary. Three totally different methods that were long methods and lots of scripture to memorize. And then you say this and they say this and you say this and they say this. And apologetics, all the different types of people that that you have to know all about them to be able to lead them to Christ. All can be good. It's all in there. I'm going to tell you what though, man. There's nothing like the Holy Spirit putting something together and you being a part of it. And you know that it's all him. And when it's all said and done, you know what you feel? Wow, God just saved that person. That's going to stick. And then, I know it wasn't me helping. I'm not the one that led him to you. But can I also be involved in his discipleship? And then our discipleship is not us teaching them everything about Jesus. It's us teaching them how to connect with Jesus who will teach them everything about himself. We got to let this sink in today. God doesn't need us to disciple people. Making disciples of Christ is introducing them to him and then helping them to know that he is accessible for them every day. It's helping people to flesh out what 21 of you now have committed to flesh out with me. I have nothing to give you other than my stories. That's my own stories. Now, do I have theology? i got tons of theology. Have doctrine? Yep. Methodologies? Out the wazoo, whatever the wazoo is. I got all that stuff. That's not what you need. What you need is to get in connection with Christ and let him be in control of of your soul winning, of your abiding. Come to know him by abiding in him and then let him be, uh, abide in him as you are being used to bless those that are lost and wandering out in the community. Abide in him while you're trying to figure out how to do community with other people in small groups and, and this. Okay, it's all about that. So we are already committed to that philosophically, ideally. But I'm asking you today, let's let's realize it's going to be all Jesus, okay? Don't try to force anything. Don't try to push anything in your own life or in the lives of others. God will do what God will do when God will do it. And let's just teach people how to connect with him. All right, let's pray. Father, I for one am thankful. That you don't need us. And I'm also thankful that you choose to use us and give us the opportunity to be involved with you in the, <clears throat> the winning of souls and the discipling of people. Not because you need us, but because you want us to know you more in the process. You want to show us how, how wonderful it is when someone comes to see you and know you and and you want us to be able to experience that. We are no more responsible than the disciples were for the fish that multiplied in their hands. We're just doing what you say. So God, say something to us. Show us people. Bring us to folks. Help us to understand that, Lord, there's nobody that's beyond reaching. Yeah, you've given so many stories in the Bible. but Thank you for the story of Saul who nobody thought could ever come to you and then in a second you changed him from a persecutor to a proclaimer of the gospel. And help us to believe in you for that and to trust you for that and and give us people to pray for and to bless. And Lord, our prayer is that you would increase the number of disciples in this city, of disciples who have been enamored by you and who are seeing you and knowing you and are growing in their desire to, to serve you and to love you because they're having their own experiences with you. Help us, help us in our process. Take all of the religion out of it. And God, help us just to be pure in our relationship with you and to present you to a community that desperately needs to see you.